The first 10 days with your baby is a beautiful, dynamic, constantly changing season of life with many steep learning curves to tackle. I, Dr. Morgan, am incredibly passionate about this time period because I see so many families completely overwhelmed and underprepared for the day-to-day changes that occur in these early days. I want all new families to feel confident and able to enjoy their new babies during the immediate postpartum time. So in this episode, I give my top five tips to thrive and talk about my 11 video course that details all of these changes so that you and your partner know what to expect and can feel ready and confident in what is normal and what is not. From post-birth interventions through the first latch, milk coming in, meconium, the normal stool changes, weight gain, birth recovery, true postpartum healing, placenta options, and more, we've got you covered. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. I am so excited for this episode, Dr. Morgan. You are the absolute expert in the immediate postpartum season, which is the first few days right after you have a baby. And you were there for me in my immediate postpartum, which was the biggest gift and blessing I've ever received. And you have so much knowledge and wisdom in a season that women really aren't supported in. And so you're going to be sharing your top five tips for the immediate postpartum time, as well as how people can get more support from you for this important time. So why don't you dive in and kind of tell us all about immediate postpartum? Yeah. So what I'm talking about here, just so people are like, what do you mean by the immediate postpartum is just that first 10 days. And I'm just kind of abstractly defining it as the first 10 days because of how many changes happen over the course of that time period. And then after that, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, you're, you're free and clear or anything. It's just that there's, there's a much slower change rate between you and the baby and things are just kind of chugging along and they're getting easier and easier as time goes on. But in that first 10 days, it's like, you know, you're bleeding up until a certain point and then your milk is coming in and you're recovering from birth. However that happened. And then for your baby, they are, passing meconium and learning how to breastfeed and they're starting to regain their birth weight and their stool is changing and they're learning how to breathe. And, you know, there's just all of these different things that are all happening all at once. And my heart breaks just thinking about myself with this in this time period as a first time mom and how overwhelmed I felt by the whole thing. And I think that there's something to be said to like, you can never really exactly be a hundred percent prepared, but having at least heard of, or, um, you know, being familiar with some of these topics, I think is such a game changer. And then also just knowing, well, where to look for resources when you need help, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, you know, you'll get released from the hospital if you have a hospital birth, or maybe, you know, the midwives leave uh, just a few hours if you're having a home birth. And actually, if you're having a birth center birth, they sort of kick you out, which (laughs) is a bit of a funny thing that people don't really think about with birth centers. But yeah, they'll kick you out after a couple of hours. Oh my kick you out. Not like it's mean, but you know what I'm saying? Like to get up and leave and then you go home and there's there's zero things that are going to happen in that in-between time period uh, for most women until six weeks postpartum, which is far too long. And so it's sort of like, okay, you know, here you have your baby go on in the world. In addition to that, if planning to breastfeed is in your uh, desired future list here, we need to be really cognizant of how these hormonal loops are expected to be triggered and turned on by certain stimuli. And if that stimuli doesn't happen, it's kind of like we miss the window. We miss mm-hmm. the window for robust supply or for baby to learn how to latch properly. And of course, there's I don't want to freak anybody out in case you know you have a situation where your baby's in the NICU or you're separated from your baby or et cetera, different things. You just may have to work harder. And a lot mm-hmm. of people don't know that. And so then they're really caught off guard. They're like, wow, nobody told me that having a cesarean would potentially cause me to have a baby that appeared actually heavier at their birth weight mm-hmm. than they actually are. And so then that drop in birth weight, which is physiologically normal, seemed greater. So then all the hospital staff were telling me that I don't have enough milk, so I need to supplement formula. And then I never pumped at the time my baby was receiving formula because I just didn't know. And then now we got off on our supply and now my baby won't latch. And you know what I mean? There's so many little things that 
are, and they, it all happens so quickly. It's not like we have weeks and weeks to Mm -hmm. integrate this information. So we really need to go into it knowing a lot. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I know for me, I am a doctor. I'm pretty well (laughs) knowledged or that's definitely not a word. I am a knowledge person. I, I know a lot of things and I was completely clueless about birth and postpartum because even in our world, you know, we don't learn all the nitty gritty details of like the practicality of what is going to happen and what you need to do and be aware of as a woman, because in medical training, it's very just like, this is how the baby comes, you know, it's just not what is actually practical and helpful. And you have this amazing way of just knowing not only all of the things, but also such practical knowings and how to troubleshoot and figure out, you know, what's going on and, and how to really help set everything up to be optimal. And I'm just so grateful that you were there with me because I really think it's what set me up to have such amazing postpartum, truly. Like my postpartum was amazing. And it's because I had you in my back pocket, which was awesome. I, I, thanks for saying that. I hope that it was at least partially for me. And I was just so happy that you were having a good postpartum because with the infertility journey and the pregnancy was rough and the birth didn't go as well as you wanted. I was like, goodness, that something needs to go really well and right. And you just flew into motherhood like so easily and with nursing and all of it just went so well. And I am so happy for that because it's that, you know, and that's obviously the ideal for everybody. We want everyone to be able to sit there and enjoy your newborn. And especially with your first experience of motherhood, there's already so many unknowns. You've never done this before. Um, and if we're not really supported in this time period, it can be those first early days can be completely shrouded by researching on your phone and asking mm-hmm. questions and Googling and and not really being able to just soak in that newborn mm-hmm. time period, which is sort of the blessing of like subsequent children, the second baby. You know, I feel like this is a really common sentiment amongst parents that they really enjoyed the newborn phase of their second child specifically because you don't have that first time mom anxiety as much anymore. Mm -hmm. You sort of know how it's all going to go and you're going to be okay and baby's going to live and everything. Um, But I really want that for first time moms as well, or especially if it's going to be your only child. And so Mm -hmm. anyways, what I have been up to recently is creating, not recently, I mean, it's been taking me a really long time (laughs) because of pregnancy and motherhood. But hey, I think that you and I do a pretty good job being, you know, working doctor moms with little kids and doing Mm -hmm. all the things. And we're a little slower than maybe some people would be, but uh, you know what? We do it. Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) right. We get it done. And so I have been working on this course that I'm calling the Immediate Postpartum Series. And it's an 11 video series that goes all through the entire spectrum of changes and interventions and things to be aware of, of the first 10 days of newborn, new motherhood for you and your baby. And you don't have to be a new mother to take the course, obviously, because especially if things didn't go the way that you wanted them to go first time, maybe you're wondering what were the ways that I could have optimized that first golden hour and the latch and knowing how much that first, you know, a couple of hours, if we can do it, affects the breastfeeding relationship or whatever it might be. So, you know, I'm talking all about what happens to your recovering baby or body and theirs how you and your partner can get ready so that you know what to expect so that you're feeling really confident in what is normal and what mm-hmm. is not. And then going through, you know, those immediate postpartum interventions that might happen to you and your baby, like within just even the first 20 minutes after birth, there's a lot of little things that if the baby can come out and then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then they're, you know, rubbing the baby, they're suctioning the baby. They're maybe giving you a shot of Pitocin or rubbing on your, um, the fundus, which is like the top of your uterus, or they're pulling your placenta out, or, you know, there's just lots of other things that can Mm -hmm. be, you can decline or deny or manage a different way. Mm -hmm. But if you don't speak up about it, there's a lot of just sort of routinized um, practices, Mm -hmm. depending on where you birth, that are going to happen. And it can be a little surprising or shocking. And you may just wish that it had gone differently had you known. So we'll Mm -hmm. talk about milk coming in, meconium, and normal fetal or newborn stool changes. Like when should it be a certain color and what do the colors mean and what is the weight gain all about and how to do like what to do with your placenta because there's mm-hmm. lots of different things you can do with your placenta, etc. So it's yes. a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to kind of talk about that, but I also really want to just highlight some of my top five 
postpartum tips for anybody who is getting ready to dive into this, you know, new motherhood realm and some things that I think will equip you well. Some of them are a little bit more specific and some of them are a little bit more vague. It's hard for me because I could talk about this forever. <laughs> and so I was like, do I want to give little quick tips, you know, or how, how do I want to think about it? But so this is, this is what I came up with. So the, for the first one, I just want you to know, and you can research this by Googling, talk to your provider, ask your friends, etc. but find a few different resources to gather because not, very few things are complete and comprehensive mm -hmm. in this way, but know what all of those immediate interventions are. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to list off a few might be like, Oh, <laughs> I had no idea. Yes. So with your baby, they might come out and automatically be suctioned. I mean, seconds after they're placed on your belly or your chest, you can deny this. Your baby doesn't need to be suctioned unless maybe they're having like a very obvious, difficult time breathing. Mm -hmm. The downside of suctioning is just that it's a little aggressive and rough. There's not necessarily a, a bigger downside than that. It's very rare for something else to happen. Okay, there's cord clamping. So do we want it delayed cord clamping? Are they going to do it immediately? Do you want to bank your baby's cord blood? So if you want to bank your baby's cord blood, it's really difficult to do both delayed cord clamping and get enough blood mm -hmm. to ensure that you have enough to put away for the cord bank. And this is in an attempt to save cord blood in the off chance that your baby ends up having some kind of like a lymphoma leukemia that needs stem cells that then they can go back to the cord blood and um, retrieve some of that for. Mm -hmm. So, but there's sort of a sweet spot. You can do delayed cord clamping for in most cases for about 60 seconds, and then they have enough blood still to be able to cord blanket. So there's little nuance cord bank it rather. There's little mm -hmm. nuances like that. Okay. So many things. <laughs> yeah. Hepatitis B shot for your baby. Yes or no. Vitamin K shot for your baby. Yes or no. Or maybe you do something like oral. The erythromycin eye drops in your baby's eyes. Do you want your baby swaddled and with a hat on immediately? Do you want them bathed or not? Are you doing skin to skin? What's happening with your placenta? Are you allowing it to just be born naturally? Are they doing a um, placental management protocol where they're going to give you a shot of Pitocin in your leg or in your IV without you even necessarily knowing it. And oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> so many things to keep track of. I love Yes. That. But it's important because I think so many women tell me after their birth that they regret what happened because they just didn't even know. You know, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to advocate for themselves. And this, I think so many people prep for birth, but they just don't prep for what happens after birth. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm glad that people are prepping for birth, of course. And that's sort of what I did. I was very, very with my first, I was really focused on the way that the birth was going to go. And I knew like a thing or two about breastfeeding, but not really that much else. And I just did not consider or think about, oh, I'm going to pass like really large clots for a couple of days out of my vagina that I was like, this is placenta. I really mm. thought, and I called my midwife and she was like, no, da, 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 you know, like because she had examined my placenta, she was very confident that it was all, all the way out. And my bleeding was within the realm of normal. Sometimes though, people are, you know, having a, an issue and there is retained placenta. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also like, you know, I had 10 stitches for a vaginal and perineal tear, which healed really well, but I didn't really know certain things. Like I could have done things a little bit better. I could have literally kept my legs together mm -hmm. more for the proximity of the tissue. And yes, it was stitched, but I think that still the way that I was like moving around and sitting, I wasn't really considering the way that a wound would heal and what I could be doing to optimize that and using sits, bath herbs, et cetera. Um, some women like, okay, so you had a cesarean, maybe mm -hmm. you wouldn't have known this had you had, maybe we not had a conversation about it, but that you would bleed out of your vagina still. Yeah, that was really shocking. <laughs> that was really shocking to me. And there's so much, yeah, like the, who's going to tell you these things? I mean, they yeah. just don't in the hospital. You know, you've had a home birth. I've had a hospital birth. It probably one of the top hospitals, really honestly, in the country. And they don't tell you any of this stuff. And honestly, most of the nurses would probably be shocked to learn some of the things that you were teaching <laughs> because I was like, one of the nurses who helped deliver me was like so interested in all the things I knew, which most of the stuff was from you that. <laughs> She was getting her notebook out and writing stuff down and getting oh my gosh. like rec like recommendations from me on different things. And 
you know, they were so proud that they had bone broth to offer me at the hospital, you know, because they were like, we are so, you know, natural minded, like we have bone broth, which I'm stoked that they did. But I mean, that was kind of the extent of it. <laughs> you know, they were like, let's talk about how to, you know, optimize this, this time period. And so I think who else is going to teach you? Yeah, you're right. Women don't go for their checkup for about six weeks and who, who, who's going to help you? Who's going to help you? Like literally no one, unless you have an amazing best friend like I did or an incredibly knowledgeable female person in your life who, who knows everything, which is like, who is that? So I'm just so stoked that you made this course because I get questions about this all the time. People message me all the time. Should I do the, you know, vitamin K shot? Should I get the eye drops? And it's like, there's so much to unpack with that. So I'm just so stoked that you made this course. (laughs) Thanks for being so excited for me. I am because I'm going to take it again for my next baby, even though you can just tell me everything because I, you forget, even if you're someone's listening, who's already had a baby, it's like, I forgot, you know, you're like, tell me about your immediate postpartum. And I'm like, I literally don't remember, but I I do as you're jogging my memory. It's all flooding back, but. It's like it's a whirlwind. I'm coming back, I'm coming back to me now. <laughs> right. Um, no, I know. And, you know, you really did give birth in like one of the top hospitals in the country in a very, very natural birth, pro-natural birth um, community. And I felt like the, all the staff that we interacted with was really, really great. And it's just not their job to know all of this stuff. It really needs to be mm-hmm. someone's job, though. It needs mm-hmm. to be a position, a, a future profession, hopefully, maybe <laughs> one day. Because, mm-hmm. you know, and there are postpartum doulas. And that is that fills that one position. It's just that not a lot of people know about them. Or a lot of people think about postpartum doulas really only as um, – Taking care of the baby. Like, I just think of them yes. as someone to come and hold the baby while I sleep. Right. Especially in the night. In the night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But but even still, a postpartum doula is not usually with you in that very first moment of birth. And some mm-hmm. birth doulas do help with all of this kind of stuff. But it's just a lot, like I'm saying, you yeah. know. And then with the baby too, okay, because w- people are like, well, what's the downside of wearing the little hat and being swaddled? Well, the downside is, is that your baby's not expecting to have clothes all over its body. And your body and brain is primed to smell them, lick them, kiss them, touch them. They are primed for skin to skin. Your nipples have little glands around them that submit a fluid that smells exactly like amniotic fluid to attract them up to the nipple. It's fine. They find it very comforting. You know, there's another little nuance that you're not supposed to wash off a baby, a new baby's hands and all the wiping that happens right immediately after birth, which, you know, the medical staff usually just does without even thinking. Um, they're thinking, okay, we're going to stimulate the baby at the same time as warm them up because they're wet. It's like, all right, well, you know what? You can just put a blanket on top of the baby and the baby is going to be very warm by mother's bare skin. And now we're achieving skin to skin. We're allowing the vernix, which is that thick white lotiony stuff that some of the babies come out with. Some of them don't. We're allowing the vernix to stay on, which is a protective coating that is there for a reason and a purpose. Here's the thing too. So many things in nature and our natural body processes, they have meaning and purpose. It's not just like accidental or... Mm You an know, inconvenience. Yes, an inconvenience that needs to be managed. I think that that is sort of the human error, like one huge, there's many human errors, right? But one huge <laughs> understated thread that goes through, like you, when you, we look at the education system, the agriculture system, the foods, everything, there's this idea that we need to hypermanage and like make everything really the way we want it and, and be involved in all of these different ways. And it's like, just let it be. If we can just step back and let it be and then help if there's a problem, of course, but if there's no problems, like let's just chill out. So babies, newborns can't do all that much, but they can crawl to the breast. They can latch. They put their hands in their mouth. Their hands are also covered in amniotic fluid. And there's a very specific reflex and purpose that of their hands going back and forth between their mouth and kind of kneading your breast and finding your nipple and tasting their hands and tasting the nipple because your colostrum is also going to have a flavor profile just like your amniotic fluid. And so it really helps to create this very strong pathway for a newborn brain of this is my food source. I've been tasting this for nine months. I need to stay here. This is good. (laughs) It's familiar. And my even my freaking hands smell like it. You know what I mean? And so when we put the little mitts and we cover them up and we get put them in clothes and then we cover their heads, which their heads are emitting pheromones, 
like for the mother to smell specifically, have massive oxytocin loops going off in her brain, which are going to help her uterus contract back down, prevent hemorrhaging, expel the placenta, and also create a very strongly bonded loop to this particular baby so that she will do anything and everything to take care of it. You know what I mean? This is in line with life. All of these little things are for the biological purpose of life, which is reproduction, if we want to look at it through that like very, very scientific lens, so that it all works out, so that we don't abandon our babies, so that we don't, you know, forget to feed them or whatever. It's it's like we are hormonally, chemically, biologically attached to them. And there's this concept, this idea of the mother-baby dyad. Dyad is D-Y-A-D. And it's this idea that like, actually the mother and baby are one unit. They are to be considered one unit for at least that first three months because human infants are born early, quote unquote early, about three months early gestationally in order for their heads to come out because <laughs> we have these really large brains. Mm-hmm. But in, if you you know look at other mammals, especially in the ape family, when their newborns come out, they're a lot more capable than mm-hmm. our newborns. Right. <laughs> so maybe if our newborns were born at you know three months postpartum, that kind of a size or an age, then some of their skills would be on par or at least it would be similar. But anyway, my, my point is, is that we are a one functioning unit together. And there's a lot of things that humans just interrupt that we don't really need to. Now, obviously, if the baby is struggling, we need to do neonatal resuscitation. Mom's bleeding out. We're going to pass the baby off. We're going to do some things like that. But what I'm talking about that's frustrating is the routine for no reason, just do it because it's hospital policy, not even thinking, not individualized care situation that's happening all over the place. And it's so annoying because we don't <laughs> have reverence for the process that is before us and the, the physiological, what if there's going to be things that like, we don't even know, we don't even, which I think is very much the case. And maybe we never will know, but like, hopefully as science becomes better, we will sort of prove these concepts that it is important and that this stuff does matter so that it can trickle down so that women aren't having to constantly be like, absolute experts and advocates for themselves. But as it stands right now, you do need to be, you do need to find some kind of outside education source because you're not going to get it. And, you know, for the midwives, I love midwives, but they still, they don't have time Mm -hmm. to explain it all. Anyways, it's like, they have a lot of stuff that they're managing and watching for, and they do the best job that they can. But like, again, there is no position of somebody who's helping people along with this. It's really like, supposed to be other women in the community who are around you, like you and I, Mm -hmm. and to each other and to other women, you know, so this is why I've created this resource so that people can benefit from it. And also for your partner, because I think for them, (laughs) they're like, whoa, I mean, we're like, whoa, and it's happening. (laughs) And then they're like, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. (laughs) And bless their souls. I'm talking mostly about men here, but it's like, they just... (laughs) you know, they're like, how do I, what am I doing here? They want to be helpful. They're like so excited. And there's a lot of vaginal things, or maybe it's surgery. There's boobs and stuff coming out of everywhere. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) There's also sometimes the dynamic uh, in the couple and in the relationship where the woman sort of like feels really vulnerable. You know, you're like, you were either cut open or you opened up wide through between your legs, like, And maybe your partner saw you poop and there's just all these vulnerable things. And sometimes we don't want to be like also sharing that side with somebody who we are intimate with and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they are kind of like trying to dance around this as well. And it's difficult to hold a newborn. And honestly, too, the newborn doesn't really want to be with the dad. I mean, not that all cases are like this, but again, like I was speaking about, this is biological. This has nothing to do with the partners being bad or something like that. It's just that the baby knows I need to be with one particular person in order to make it alive. (laughs) That one person is the one who created me and whose boobs are making my food. And this is, again, pre-formula, you know, the way we adapted evolved, we didn't have formula. And so if the baby didn't get fed by you, the baby would die. Like, this is just the way that it would be. It makes total sense when we think about it through that lens. It's not to say that any one way that people are doing things is wrong. Like I just, you know what I mean? Come on guys. Like we know that we can have a conversation about this. Right. So mm-hmm. anyways, that is my number one tip, I guess. Is, yes. <laughs> is know sort of what is coming so that first of all, you're not shocked. Second of all, you have an answer. Ideally, we've already talked about these interventions with your providers so that there's some sort of a birth plan. And we do have a really awesome episode about birth plans, which we'll link in the show notes. We also have an episode 
about overall postpartum healing, but that's more on like the broad sense of postpartum healing that takes place over the course of that first year. This one is more specific to immediate stuff that's happening. Um, but yeah, like ideally you have talked about this, you and your partner feel confident in your choices. You're going to say yes to this thing and no to this thing. And it's written up somewhere and all the nurses and everybody on staff is on board so that they don't accidentally give your baby something that you don't want them to, because that happens all the time. And there's nothing that you're going to get compensated back from the hospital for doing, for them doing something like that, because it's just an accident and it's routine for them and they do it all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's my first thing. That's great. There were a thousand tips and the one tip you and I do tips the same. (laughs) We're like, here's the one tip. And let me tell you a thousand things within that tip. Um, It's it's so true. I'm just making a note of what to add to our show notes. Um, Yes. And I just wanted to highlight there with that. And then we'll move on to tip number two is, you know, especially with the partners, they do want to be helpful and they want to do the best that they can. And if you don't have this information and the why, behind these recommendations, people are going to default to what they think is the best. Like, for example, if you and or your partner are raised to think being clean is really good, you know, they might want to clean the baby thinking, oh, that's the best because that's how my paradigm of how I was raised. Maybe my parents were clean people or they like things very like OCD clean. And so you might think this is the best thing for my baby because that's the lens they're looking through the world versus if they learn from you how important um, you know, any of the non-cleaning practices are, then they might say, oh, now I know how to be the most helpful. It's to not clean the baby. You know what I mean? So it's like yes. people will default to what they think is quote unquote best if they don't know better. And it's like people are trying to do the best they can. It's like you can't get mad at someone for wanting to put a hat on a baby if they think, oh, I must keep the baby warm because that's the best for the baby. When in reality, if you knew actually what's best for the mom and baby is to not put a hat on. So I think it's just really empowering to to give to your partner as well this information to say, okay, you want to help me? This is the best way to help me versus what you think is the best way based on your own past paradigms of any understanding. Right. Or the way that we do things with adults is different than the way that we do things with newborn babies. Yeah. Okay. To that really quick, I suggest that people wait about 10 days before they bathe the baby first, Mm -hmm. which is shocking for some people to hear because they're like, what? And the reason for this is because again, they have that vernix on them. Sometimes, sometimes they don't, even if they don't still important because you are, they're colonizing their whole entire body and skin and internally, externally, but you know, specifically skin with the microbiome bacteria that they're getting either from your vagina, but even if they came out as a cesarean from being skin to skin with you mm-hmm. and breast milk, every time they latch, they're getting millions and billions of bacterial cells mm-hmm. every single time, you know, just being on your chest, being around you, they are getting colonized by all of the bacteria that is on your skin. And we want that to be able to really take hold because we know how important the microbiome is. Again, you guys, we got to think about this hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they weren't immediately bathing, but they didn't bathe themselves very often. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. guess who was healthier in a lot of ways? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Totally. We know that the hygiene theory is, is problematic in a lot of ways. So yes, I love that point. It's, it can be different from what you might automatically think is logically the case mm-hmm. when, when it comes to, it can feel a little dirty. It can feel a little nitty gritty, but we're primal. Humans are animals. We are just one of the animal species. And there's a lot with birth that really connects us to that truth that is um, outside of the way that we live our normal lives. Yeah. So it can feel really weird. Yeah. Okay. Number two is really understanding the importance of golden hour and that first latch and having the solid basics of breastfeeding under your belt. And what's golden hour for people who don't know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So golden hour is about that first hour after the baby is born. And it is the time period where we want to really prioritize if we can. Of course, if we can't, you're just going to do the best you can. But if possible, we want to prioritize skin to skin and getting the baby to latch within that first hour, the first latch. It may not be perfect. I mean, it's probably not going to be perfect, actually. That's like much more common, <laughs> but it's more the idea of keeping the baby on you, not being taken away if we can again. Um, or if say like you're being sewn up in surgery, dad can be doing skin to skin. Right. Somebody doing skin to skin with baby. Yes, which is yeah. what we did. Mike ripped his shirt off in the OR. <laughs> I love and that. he was like basically naked. And he said, because they tried to give her to me to do skin to skin. And I had so much, you know, numbing anesthesia that my arms wouldn't even work. And I couldn't. And it was just, you know, not at all what I imagined. And I couldn't 
couldn't keep her on me. And so Mike just took his shirt off and put him on her chest and it was great. And, you know, our hospital was great with that. I know some hospitals will be annoyed, but just, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. Ask for forgiveness in that scenario. Don't ask for permission because yeah. if you can just even get a few minutes and it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. So, and then latching the baby. And again, like our, you know, people, really literal people are going to be like, oh my gosh, the baby was born at 3.30 and now it's 4.30 and it's over and I can't do it. And it's like, no guys, come on. It just means really, really close in proximity. And yes, within the hour is the goal. So keep that in your mind. That's the goal. Baby's on you and you're you're trying and attempting to give them the opportunity to latch. And sometimes they don't really want to, or they're tired, they're sleepy, whatever, but they'll usually like lick around and they're kind of like looking up at you. And they have this, one of the things I talk about in the course is that there is a pattern seen in the way that newborns are alert initially right after birth. And then they kind of go into this like sleepy phase after about an hour and a half. And then it can be more difficult to rouse them during that period of time. Then they kind of come back and they have another alert phase and there's this cyclical. um, I mean, that's one thing about newborns in general that I think shocks a lot of moms is how much they sleep Mm -hmm. (laughs) there. It's sometimes really difficult. You have to like wake them up, get them naked, tickle their feet, like blow on them, get them to, in order to get them to nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that that's a good idea. Some people might be like, well, no, just let the baby sleep. And it's like, well, sometimes that can be okay. But, um, sometimes also they are so sleepy and then they are missing opportunities to feed and which would give them energy. And so then it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy in the negative direction, which happened to me yeah. with my first where he, I thought he was happy and content and, um, because he was, he would nurse or he would be latched. I should say he was not nursing. I thought he was, I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, he was latched for like 45 minutes. I was like, okay, this, and then he would sleep. And I was like, this baby is so happy milk drunk. No, my baby was choosing to starve because he was working so hard to get milk and he couldn't. And I didn't know that. And I thought his green stool was normal. And I thought my nipple bleeding damage was normal. And the fact that my breast never felt softer after he fed and I had mastitis on day four, like none of, and again, day four guys, this is what I'm talking about with this stuff. It can happen so quick. Mm -hmm. It's like, I didn't even have time to like think, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, boom, I have mastitis. And I'm like, how did that happen? Like, I don't understand what, you know, anyway. So I, again, I don't want to freak anybody out. My goal is the opposite of that. Actually. My goal Mm -hmm. is to empower you. So you're like, Oh, there's a lot that I should know about this. I'm going to research and like, you know, look into a good resource. That's the goal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So number three of my top five postpartum tips is to, um, this is sort of related to number two, but I think that it, it deserves its whole own one because, of how important it it can be. And for certain people like you, it actually wasn't important at all. (laughs) But I feel like a lot of people it is, is to plan on and budget for an out-of-hospital lactation consultant to help Mm -hmm. you with breastfeeding. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is a very true stereotype, I mean, in a lot of cases, that hospital lactation consultants are just not all that helpful. And you've heard me probably talk about this on the podcast before. And it's because they are trained in normal breastfeeding. But if there is nothing, if there's anything outside of normal happening, any pathology level whatsoever, it's really out of their wheelhouse. And finding somebody who is higher trained, has their own independent practice, may even come to your house, will probably cost about $150 for that first appointment. Follow-ups will be less. And it can be the absolute thing to make or break your mm-hmm. entire experience. And so these people are called IBCLCs, International Board Certified Lactation Consultants. So LC after the name is just lactation consultant or lactation counselor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's not that all LCs are, are bad. It's just that don't expect their advice to be very thorough, comprehensive root cause in the hospital if you have something going on. Also, you may not have something going on for the first few days. So now you're out of the hospital and right. what are you going to do? So what I love all my pregnant friends, clients, patients, whatever to do is start when during your pregnancy, find your woman, find the one mm-hmm. that you're going to choose. You can do this by asking local people around for recommendations, ask your provider for recommendations, mm-hmm. um, maybe like post on a, a parenting group or something like that for your local town do whatever you need to do. 
start gathering and seeing the patterns. There, there's going to be names that are repeated over and over again. The people like love, that's your girl. And you're going <laughs> to call her and you're going to say, hey, I'm 29 weeks pregnant or I'm 37 weeks pregnant, whatever. This is my due date. I just wanted to call and like get on your radar and have your number in my phone because these like little things mm-hmm. when you're overwhelmed and you're postpartum and you have a newborn in your arms, you don't want to be researching all this stuff. You want to have it done already. And listen, if you don't need to use her, great. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. Yep. You, you, you guided me on this. I had the person that I was going to call, but I didn't really need anyone. One, because I had your help so much and Avi was a good lasher, but if I didn't have your guidance, I would have, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, how would you know what to do? I mean, I just had such a unique experience having you like the expert in my life, but so many women don't have anything near that. Yeah. And they're just trying to do it over and over again. And it's like, I I mean, even just the idea of how many times it might take you to unlatch a bad latch and Mm -hmm. reposition your baby that like, I think some women would think, oh my God, this isn't working. Something's wrong. Like I had to, the baby didn't get on to that. It's like, no, no, no. You need to just kind of understand that this is the way it goes. My favorite quote, and I've said it on the podcast before, but I'll say it again. Women learn to breastfeed by breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Babies learn to breastfeed by breastfeeding. Both of you at the same time are learning how to do this thing. And it's a lot and it's, it is instinctual and it is natural. And there is drive and reflex to encourage its success. But I also think along with that would should have been a lifetime of us as little girls observing people breastfeeding babies out in public, our friends, our aunts, our uncle, our uncles, (laughs) everyone else around us. And we see it with our eyeballs close up and Mm -hmm. without having to cover up or even, you know, just a little while ago, it used to be like illegal to breastfeed in public in certain places, which blows my mind, but whatever. Um, you know, and so in a, another additional step, I guess, besides even just finding your lactation consultant would be to, while you're still pregnant, attend a lactation support group. If there is something like that, that's around you, that's free and just go and sit and listen to what the other women are talking about and watch them latch their babies and unlatch and mm-hmm. hear how much a baby might cry or fuss or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. just watching it, a passively absorbing the experience that you're about to have and be responsible for eight, 10, 12 times a day, every single day for months, you know? Oh my God. It is like (laughs) doing some sport like tennis and being like, okay, you're about to go into a tennis match without having learned literally nothing. You don't know how the sport works. (laughs) You don't know how to hold a racket. You don't know how to hit a ball. You're just told it's just instinct. You should be able to just be a tennis pro and you just show up on the court with this racket and you're like, uh, and then like wonder why you maybe aren't the best, you know? I mean, it is crazy. We have no experience in our culture of this, yet we are expected to do it. And this is how it is with everything, you know? It, you know, we have so many thoughts about the whole world like this, but this is a huge one. I think breastfeeding 100% because birth is going to happen to you, you know, whether you want it or not. Like if you have a baby in you, the baby's going to come out some way or another, you know, but breastfeeding, it really takes like, you have to actually want to do it or know when there's a problem or know when it's not being normal and in all of these things. And, you know, a lot of women just give up when maybe they wouldn't have needed to give up if they knew this information. Yeah. And a lot of women don't want to give up and they do. And then they're, they are so sad or they regret it or they find out information later and they go, Oh my God, that could have been what I needed or yeah. whatever. And that's just so sad to me because I, I know what that's like. I almost had my, my first breastfeeding relationship slip between my fingers. I mean, I kind of, th- sometimes I think I maybe should have had it slip through my fingers because my mental health would have been a lot better, but maybe not. I don't know. I just was on the cycle of very, very being worried about mastitis all the time. And, um, you know, I almost decided to stop multiple times and, and still didn't persevere, whatever. But like, it was so wild to me how no one seemed to talk about it. So anyways, Mm -hmm. tip number three, just to reiterate is plan on meeting with an out of hospital lactation consultant. Know that they're called IBCLCs, get recommendations from your local community, maybe even take it a step further and join a class or two 
or a lactation group so you can witness it <clears throat> firsthand. Um, in my course, I give like a basically like an entire breastfeeding course <laughs> yeah, on, on you know the things to think about. Okay, also this is in light of now a day and age where so many babies are coming out lip and tongue tied, and mm-hmm. I think that we've sort of discussed on the some past episodes of potential reasons why that is. Um, there is a breastfeeding episode, which we'll link in the show notes as well. But if your baby is lip and tongue tied, just know as well, all of this is going to be even harder than it normally should be. And that super sucks because you are already sort of up against this like, you know, big learning curve. And some women have absolutely no problems with breastfeeding and their nipples are great. Their baby's latch is great. Everything just goes well. Um, but I would say a lot more need a bunch of help, if not like a a huge amount. And then now there's a lot of babies that are coming out tied and that creates more pain. They're not transferring as much milk as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe they're not gaining as much weight or they're super fussy. I think this is a huge root cause to colicky babies. Mm -hmm. You know, they're swallowing so much air because their latch sucks and then they're screaming in pain because they're having gas move through their entire digestive system all day long because they're newborns and they're feeding all day long and they never get a break from it. And so they're crying all the time and you're really overwhelmed and your breasts hurt and your nipples are bleeding. And you know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. let's get ahead of this. So I do discuss also in the course, like what are the signs and symptoms of a tongue lip tie? And then how do we remedy it? And what is like the best, most comprehensive way to do that? Because it includes body work and stretches. It is not just go and get a laser revision. That is negligent medical care, in my opinion, for a doctor, usually a pediatric dentist, to not explain thoroughly how important the bodywork and stretches post-surgery are Mm -hmm. to this entire recovery process. So that's number three. Number four (laughs) is have a meal train or freezer full of postpartum food that you've made during your pregnancy so that you can allot for you eating four meals per day. Mm-hmm. Four. Yeah. Amen. This- you know, I love the eating. Yes. <laughs> like the biggest food pusher ever. I feel like my whole job is to just get people to eat more food. <laughs> Great. And, you know, women, we know this as practitioners of women's health that women are chronically undernourished. And this is, it. it's partially from the culture of, you know, the skinny, whatever, whatever. But actually, you know, it's like when you have a good, healthy me- metabolism because you are really well nourished every, you can eat way more than you think, and you're not going to gain an abnormal amount of weight. It's more about what you're eating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and is your body starving constantly? Or is it feeling really, really primed and optimal in health and how much that affects the way that your glucose metabolism and, you know, adipose tissue interacts with all your hormones and da 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 da. Anyways. So the reason why I want to press this is because we think, okay, pregnant women need to eat a lot of food. Actually, pregnant women, they do. They need to eat good food for sure, but it's not as much as, it's not that much more, I guess, than like in your non-pregnant state mm-hmm. for a lot of women. Breastfeeding, however, mm-hmm. <laughs> the amount of food that you need to be eating now in order to maintain this supply and for recovery and for feeling well, and when you're not sleeping, the only thing you can do then to provide your body energy is to eat good food. When you're not going to have restorative deep sleep, which is a very normal thing postpartum, food is now even more of an ally for you. Mm -hmm. And it's much more difficult. At the same time, there's two factors going on here. First of all, your needs go way up. Second of all, your time and the ability to make this food goes way down. Mm -hmm. So we need to be prepped. We need to think about Mm -hmm. this ahead of time, have friends, family, bringing food via something like a meal train or you have prepped and you have a lot of like freezer stews and soups and bone broth and, you know, rice, chicken, veggie meals and whatever ready to go that you can reheat or frozen other things. Um, there's so much that you can do on a really affordable budget as well. That is nutrient dense, healthy, made by your own hands, the way that you like with all your spices, the way that it tastes good, you know, accounting for your food allergies, etc. that are going to help you so that you aren't starving (laughs) in between (laughs) feeds, you know, or putting all of that pressure on a partner or somebody else that's helping you. Um, But that I think can take a lot of people by surprise is how laborious. And it feels like I remember really specifically thinking this before I had any kids because people would say my mom specifically. And then I remember one of our peers at school who had had a baby during school before I did saying things like, 
I couldn't even get my shower in for the day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> you can't take a five minute shower. Like something is wrong. Then mm-hmm. I don't get that. But I mean, now, you know, we're shaking our heads. Yes. Or it's like, once you have, you just know there's, it's not that you can't, you could, it's just the, all of the priorities of your time shifts and it's more difficult. All of this stuff is more difficult and especially cooking and cooking four times a day. is not happening. So we also don't want to compromise that we're eating, that we're not going to be eating good food. We want right. to be eating really good nourishing food. Mm-hmm. And in order to recover so that we can feel really good. And I, I remember talking about this recently in one of our other podcasts is just this idea that like these first couple of months, the reason why we want to focus on resting so much is that it's sort of like we're charging up our battery for our first entire year of motherhood. Mm-hmm. And if we get really burnt out, really depleted, or we never fully actually recover in that early postpartum period, it will affect your entire time. It's mm-hmm. like, this is a grand opportunity. And as we've said as well in the past that a lot of ancient cultures do think that there's a reset available to women with the stem cells and the way that the immune system changes post-birth and the way that all these physiological changes happen that in the immediate postpartum phase, when we are really well supported, we can actually come out with better health than before. Oh yeah. So, I think that happened to me for sure. Totally. Yes. But so much of it was because of how much support I had in postpartum. So like exponential. And I would say if there's anything that you want to spend money on, you know, obviously the lactation and and helping the baby breastfeed is, is number one. But for me personally, I would say hire someone who can come and cook for you. If you have the resources to hire anybody, not someone even to necessarily watch the baby. And for me, I wouldn't even say someone to like watch him so you can sleep. I mean, sleep is important, but you're physiologically designed to not need as much sleep during this time. I would say it is someone who will feed you all day long or like come and meal prep and have, you know, meals for the week or something like that. Because I just think it is the thing that so many people neglect. And there is this culture of women being like, oh, the baby's come now. I need to go back to exercising and getting back in shape. And I'm going to kind of starve myself so that I can lose weight. And, you know, breastfeeding is supposed to lose a bunch of weight. And it's like you will just be better overall if you just focus on nourishment, focus on eating all the time. And if you can't do that, you know, prep as much as you can ahead of time. And if you if you didn't or if you need more support, that's the time to hire somebody to come help. Or if you have blessed family members who can like come and cook for you, I think it is the number one thing, it is the number one thing I focused on. And I really do think it's what made such a big difference in having such a good milk supply, a happy person, a happy me, a happy baby. And it really did set me up long-term for good success um, because it's such a high priority. Absolutely. And you know, there's ways now on all of the major baby registry websites to put in services as options that things people can purchase. You know, a newborn doesn't really need all that much. There is so much consumer culture, you know, going into like a a bye-bye baby is my worst nightmare. I think that place (laughs) needs to just go away. Yeah. (laughs) I want to just stand at the door and and like hand out a sheet of paper to all of the like poor manipulated new moms of what do you actually need for your Mm -hmm. new baby? Because it's none of this. It's Mm -hmm. not this floor to ceiling, absolute junky crap. Mm -hmm. Spend your money in a much better direction. And that's mostly taking care of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, this all goes back to, and we do talk about this at length in the postpartum episode, which is in the first season and we'll, we'll link it. But we talk about at length that again, the baby is not all that it's the, <laughs> the community, the partner, everybody needs to be focusing on the woman mm-hmm. and the mother taking care of her so that she can take care of the baby mm-hmm. because really the baby wants to be on her and nursing and she is going to be nursing that baby for like eight to 10 hours a day. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. So if you've never had a child before and you're listening to this, first of all, good for you. I hope that this helps you. Congratulations. Second of all, I know it's really hard to wrap your mind around what I just said, <laughs> <laughs> but truly maybe, maybe on the low end, six hours, what would you say? I mean, I would say it's, the high, higher end, if you want to be good about it. Yeah. Or like the, no, the, like the lower end is like six hours a day. The higher end being like eight hours. I mean, yeah, I would say, I don't even know if you could get away with six hours a day. I mean, in oh, a 24 yeah. hour period. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Of I mean, maybe in like the week, the traditional waking hours. 
It's, yeah, but you're feeding it. Yeah, so what you're, you're saying is more. more. Yeah, yeah, if you think about it as a whole 24-hour cycle, I mean, it's like every hour, right? <laughs> or like every other hour, it's a lot. It's so much. Like 12 and, hours, I would say. I don't know. Yeah, and they, it does get faster. And mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like, oh my gosh, well, I can. I, that's unsustainable. I'm not even going to try. No, this is just when they're little tiny little babies. They have to feed often. They're Again, they're not as efficient with their latch. But even starting at like, mm, I don't know, two months. So like somewhere around eight weeks, it just, it continues to get faster and faster and faster to the point where it's like three minutes, five minutes, you know, and it's so quick. And then that's every three hours. So Mm -hmm. it's very, very, very feasible to work into a schedule a little bit later on. It's just, again, this immediate immediate time time Mm -hmm. is so intensive. You will sort of feel like you can't get up and even take a shower because your baby is going to want to be feeding again, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's normal for them to do that because they're pulling in your milk supply. They're stimulating it. It's also not just about milk. Mm -hmm. They don't breastfeed just about milk. It's the biggest comfort for them. Also, oh, I was researching about birth hormones for this pregnancy call that I'm making. And I didn't know this, that it makes sense though. Endorphins are part of one of the main, you know, there's three main hormones that are playing into birth that can be good or bad. First one's obviously oxytocin. That's what's causing the uterus to contract. That is the, the synthetic form of oxytocin is what Pitocin is. That's how they do a lot of inductions, et cetera. Then there's endorphins, which endorphins are released in the presence of pain and stress. And so they're what keep us feeling really good and they help mitigate the pain response, et cetera. And then there's adrenaline and adrenaline we really don't want in birth because anytime we're feeling fear, adrenaline's going to come in, it's going to stop the contractions or stall the birth. This is again, biologically sensible because if there's something around us that's scary and we're in a really vulnerable position being in the middle of labor and delivery, we need this, the labor to stop or stall so we can get to a position of safety. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, in our modern day, the fear is usually coming from our environment and the people around us bullying us, not listening to us, putting us on a clock, coming mm-hmm. in and out, monitoring us, You know, us getting up and moving locations from the home to the hospital, et cetera. So anyways, the endorphins, though, that are going through our bloodstream – also transfer into the milk Mm. and oxytocin transfers into the milk. And this is why they think that babies get this like little natural contact high all the time. Every time they have this nursing event and they're, so it, it ties them further to, first of all, like this is my food source and this feels really good. And endorphins are opiates. Mm -hmm. Like they sit on the same receptors as heroin Mm -hmm. and morphine. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a reason, but it's biological. This is why this feels good. And there's, there's ways that we kind of keep these love hormones and these things going so that we can, for survival's sake. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just think that's kind of a cool little <laughs> side tidbit. Um, okay. So the fifth thing is, and this is, this is just, I think, in preparation of both things happening, this is something that you and I did not do very well. Mm. And this is why I wanted to bring it up because I think that we could have done a little bit more in preparation and conversation around this so that it wasn't so kind of scary was prepare and know the things that you should be doing for both vaginal and cesarean birth recovery. Ah, yes. And walk through what it might be like to not have your birth plan go the way that you want Mm -hmm. so that you've kind of gone through in your mind. All right. If for some reason, you know, say this is plan A, this would be plan B, plan C, plan D, da, 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 whatever. And go through like, what are, what is the thing I really don't want to end up happening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was a cesarean and that is what was happening. And it was sort of happening so fast that it was like, not because it was emergent, thankfully, mm-hmm. but it was like, we didn't want it to become that. And so we sort of got, try to get ahead of that. Right. And I think we really made the d- right choice. I'm saying we, as if it was, no, it was, it was you and me delivered AV into the world. <laughs> it was great. It's a sister wife effort. It was you, Mike, and me. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll never forget me sleeping at the foot of your guys' bed that first night when you were in labor, like a little dog, like curled up. Oh my God. And you invited me to sleep up next to you, but I was honestly like more comfortable where I was. But it was just, I was like, oh, it's just us three, three best <laughs> friends that anyone could ever have. Oh my God. That's amazing. I love it. But you know, it was, it was something that we hadn't gone there and we should have, we really should have been like, Hey, this is what it would look like. 
here's some choices that you can make. Would you like it to go like this? Would you like it to go like this? And yeah, I remember because, you know, I was very much, I'm such a manifester and like the way that I am. And it's like, I didn't want to bring it into my space. Totally. But I think there is a piece of if you're really afraid of something or you're trying really hard to push it away and there's no acceptance around something that you can almost draw it to you more. And I even knew that and was like getting ahead of that of like, well, I'm not actually afraid of it. You know, it's like, <laughs> but it's like clearly whatever. It was what it was. Like I didn't have the acceptance that like this could happen. I was like, I'm not even going to bring it into my awareness. Like this is never going to happen. And people do this around fertility and infertility. It's same with birth. And it's like, what's better? Yes, like you said, is to identify all the different paths and how you can be optimal in all of those and then put them in a drawer and then focus on your ideal situation. But if for some reason one of those other paths happen, you have a plan. Because I remember when we were transferring to the hospital, I looked at you and I said, Morgan, how do I have an empowered C-section? Like, what if this happens? Because I didn't read anything. I didn't listen to any birth stories about C-sections. I didn't read any information about C-sections because... I was like, that's just not going to happen for me. I don't even want to bring that into my awareness. And then I felt very panicked that I didn't know what to say yes or no to. I didn't know how to do this in a healthier way. Like we knew all the other things, but we didn't prepare for that. And you obviously did a bunch of research on the back end and helped me (laughs) understand things, but very few women have you, you know, to do that. So I just think that's such a great tip. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and just even having walked through, it once is better than nothing. Um, and thinking, okay, well, this is how it's going to go. Da, da, da. And then also spending a few minutes on thinking about the recovery, like the way that it would be if you'd had a C-section. So now you're gonna have this incision. Okay. All right. Things are going to, you're going to need some help getting around. You can actually walk around pretty well, which is shocking. I don't really understand how that happens, but <laughs> it's like, they make you get up and walk around right away. And you've had this major abdominal surgery. It's like, wow, it's, it's shocking. Like our bodies are amazing. But anyways, you know, with the way that you're going to hold your baby, mm-hmm. you don't want them pressing on your incision. And so there's going to be different breastfeeding positions that are appropriate for you. And, you know, there's different supplements or food groups that we can focus on that will help with that soft tissue recovery. And um, then there's things to think about, like with pelvic floor PT later on. Mm-hmm. And there's just like a whole different way to think about it. And then mm-hmm. sometimes people are planning, maybe they're planning on a cesarean or, something and they haven't really thought about a vaginal birth recovery, but the baby's born in the car, like yep. on the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe their baby was breached or something. I don't think it's as common, but it happens. I think, or, or I guess one that is common is people plan to get an epidural and then they can't mm-hmm. because the baby's happening. It's coming so fast or the anesthesiologist is busy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a common misconception that, Oh, I'll go to the hospital and I'll get an epidural. A lot of the time that works out fine, but just we need it to not be like something that's synonymous as a guarantee because I can't tell you how many people didn't do any prep. So really this whole thing, this the themes just comes back to being like, okay, I'm going to have my plans, mm-hmm. but I'm going to think about what are the other ways that this can go yeah. so that I'm not shocked, so that I do have a plan, so I do feel like I can stay grounded amongst the chaos of everything going on around me and make solid choices that – are informed and not because I'm be like persuaded or because I'm scared. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that those little things do actually really add up to affect your experience coming into motherhood. And our goal, you and I, is that people have wonderful motherhood experiences mm-hmm. of, you know, getting pregnant, holding their babies, birthing their babies in an empowered state mm-hmm. and having really great motherhood and postpartum experiences. Right. So all of this to say, if you are interested in learning more about the course, I am launching it at the end of the month. This is September, 2023. Mm-hmm. It is going to be called the immediate postpartum series. You can find more information on my website, milkmedicine.com slash postpartum course, or through Instagram, of course, because that's just like the way to be more updated on happenings. <laughs> <laughs> Social media is, is a double-edged knife. I know. <laughs> it's fun and it's, it's not fun sometimes, but Mm -hmm. anyways, and, um, thanks for just letting me share that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all these things because I have my own birth coming up here pretty soon. And although I do feel pretty well versed in all this, it being the fourth time, every baby is different. Every experience is different. Um, 
you know, you and I just talked about the meal train recently and yep. thank you for planning that for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to get your freezer stocked full of food and I'll put food in my freezer too for you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes, I, I highly recommend you guys check out her course. Honestly, this is probably one of the best resources out there that you could take during, you know, when you're pregnant, even if you're not pregnant yet, you know, you can still get this course, even if you're just thinking about kids, you know, to just be ready and prepared to have it. But if you are pregnant, if you're in your early pregnancy, later pregnancy, um, or even if you've already had children, you know, and want to maybe have future children, you know, who knows what, make when great, you'll need this information gift. or yeah. yeah, give it as a gift or, you know, if you have a friend or a family member who is about to deliver, you know, sometimes it's so overwhelming. You could be the Dr. Morgan for them. You know, you could take the time if they feel overwhelmed or stressed out, like you could learn this and help them. You know, if you are a support, you know, with them, you could be on the phone and say, okay, well, I learned this in Dr. Morgan's course. I think, you know, you should oh, do this so kind sweet. of thing. What a so, sweet idea. That's such a sweet idea. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to just be for someone who's like immediately about to give birth, because I think as a community, we all as women should be knowing this information so that we can help yeah. or help our daughters. You know, if you're someone who's beyond your child bearing years, but you have, you know, younger women in your life or whatever, like we all should know this information. So really this is a course for, for everybody. Perfect, Bella. There's someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm stoked for it. So thank you for thank sharing you. your wisdom. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.